remember when I was in high school, I took a great books class, and one of the um, segments was on the existence of God. And in many of the discussions, people had to take a position on whether they believed God existed or not. And as this was public high school and your senior year of high school, and you're kind of in those teenage rebellious years where you start thinking you're a deep thinker, there were a lot of atheists in the class who took issue with organized religion and stuff like that. And I remember one uh, kid used the argument, well, if there's a God who's all-powerful, can he make a rock so big he can't move it? Which was like the gotcha, you know? Your, your God can't exist because I found a logical loophole. Um, if God's all-powerful, he's got to be able to make the biggest rock possible, but could he make one so big that even he, all-powerful, couldn't lift it? Of course, it sounds deep or clever, but it actually is meaningless. It's kind of like saying, can God make a square circle or a married bachelor? It's just like, can God blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just a nonsense phrase that doesn't actually mean anything. Um, but it sounds like you gotcha. That uh, now this position that you hold, that God exists, that he's all good, all powerful, all knowing, is impossible. Well, our gospel today is the Sadducees trying to do that exact same thing to Christ. The Sadducees are, it says in the gospel of Luke, those who do not, who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. In other words, that at the end of time, all the dead will rise, which was a belief, as we see in the second book of Maccabees, that was starting to be nascent in the Jewish mind, um, that the dead didn't just go to Sheol or the underworld or the shadowlands and then stay there, but that God somehow in his providence was pro- going to provide for a new life, a new kind of eternal life where it wasn't just a soul or a ghost, but that your body would rise from the grave and that we would have new glorified bodies. The Sadducees deny that. You can remember this by saying the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection, whereas the Pharisees did. You know, like there were other groups of Jews at the time who did believe it, but the Sadducees did not. And so they come up with this little word game to, to trick Jesus because they know he, obviously, is uh, calling himself the resurrection and the life. He must be a proclaimer of the truth of the resurrection. They say, well, what if this woman had a husband who died? And in Moses' law, it says that if a husband dies, a wife's uh, husband dies childless, then the brother, it's his filial or fraternal duty to marry that woman and to raise up descendants for his brother. Well, what if he has seven brothers and they all die and none of them have kids? When she is in the resurrection, is she going to have seven husbands, which to their mind would have been impossible? And Jesus sees through it, obviously, he's the son of God, that they don't understand it. It's just like those high school seniors. They think that they've gotcha, but what they're doing is revealing that they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know what's meant by the term resurrection or by the term God. And Jesus says this haunting phrase, the children of this age marry and remarry, but those who are deemed worthy to attain to the coming age and the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. There's no marriage in heaven, in other words. That it's on a different plane. That in this world, yes, you get married. That's part of natural life. But in this resurrected life, it's not just going to be like an everlasting carbon copy of this world. It's going to be something different. And the New Testament through the letters of Paul, and then especially in the book of Revelation, tries to get at the mystery of what it is that we're waiting for in the resurrection. What is it going to actually be like? And what it is, in short, is that it's the marriage not between 
individual human beings, men and women, but the marriage between God and his church, that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. All of us together are going to be married, as it were, to God. What does that look like? (laughs) Well, we don't know, really. It's, It's called the beatific vision, seeing God face to face, being in total communion with the Trinity, uh, the eternal love that is the creative force of the entire universe, like we're going to somehow be married to him. Um, it's a mystery, and no language game is going to prove that, oh, that must not be true, that it's something that's totally beyond our comprehension or even our imagination to picture what that's like. But I remember I was hearing a story of uh, some nuns who went to visit a church, and there was a, a sacristan at the church who happened to have Down syndrome, and he had been sacristan for a really long time, prepared the mass, set up everything for the priest. Um, and he was a very holy man, prayed all the time. And the sisters were very impressed with him. And they said, um, are, is God your best friend? Because he was given this tr- tour of the church and all this stuff and talking about God. He says, no, I have friends, but with God, it's different. It's like when I pray, he's in me and I'm in him, like we're one. And all these nuns were like, whoa, <laughs> that's, that's the unitive way. That's the way of the saints, that their will and God's will are united. And so that there is really no separation between the soul and God. That's the whole idea of being married to God or becoming a saint, is that now there is, you're in communion constantly. There's no division between us and God or my will and his will. But as Jesus said also in in Matthew, uh, you've hidden these things, Father, from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Sometimes we have to let go of our categories or our expectations or our imaginations in order to really grasp the mystery. The mystery is, is Jesus. That's it. That Jesus is the marriage between God and humanity. He is both fully God and fully human. And in his body, in his blood, in his soul, in his divinity, all of the mystery of Christianity is wrapped up and we are incorporated into that, especially at this Eucharist where we become one flesh with Christ. And so this world that we're in, in a way, it's, the technical term is eschatological tension, meaning the end times, when this will be fulfilled, the resurrection of the dead, when Christ comes again in glory and all the dead rise from their grave and we live in this marriage feast of heaven forever. That's like in the future, but it's also kind of happening now. We're in the already but not yet, the tension of the eschaton, which just means the end times. That we, we aren't there yet, but we see signs of it everywhere. That God is revealing himself to us through beautiful things, but most especially through the sacraments, those things that draw our hearts into communion with God. And I'll finish with this. This is uh, C.S. Lewis, who I quote all the time. He's one of my favorite authors. But in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he talks about this very thing, that what led him finally to Christ and the church was that his heart longed for this feeling that he'd felt several times in his life during different stages. Um, a feeling he called joy, where he just felt like, that's what I'm here for, this enjoyment. And sometimes it was in a simple pleasure, sometimes it was in a religious experience. But what he realized was that it was a reflection of, of God. And that as soon as he tried to grasp onto it and say, like, that's it, that's what I want, um, 
the feeling or the, the joy itself would evanesce. It would just kind of evaporate because it, it had to be received. It had to be something um, outside coming in, not me grabbing out and, and pulling in. And so he says this at the end of his autobiography, um, that he, he's done trying to grasp onto beautiful things, like marriage, for instance, is a reflection of the divine glory. But there is no marriage in heaven. It's, it's no longer the images or the reflections of beautiful things, but beauty itself, God himself, who we long for. He said, these things, the beautiful things, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in.